Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 20. Hope all of you had a super Thanksgiving. I know of two hunters who didn't. They were walking through a field headed toward their hunting blinds when the farmer's bull got after them. Soon they were running for their lives and the bull was gaining ground at such speed they knew they would never make the fence. And so one hunter said to the other, you need to start praying for us, bro. And his buddy replied back, well, I'm not a praying man, and I certainly don't pray in public. <laughs> well, you better start making exceptions, my man. And so the buddy replied back, well, I only know one prayer that my grandma taught me. He said, well, pray it and pray it quick. And so here's what he prayed. Lord, for what we're about to receive, let us truly be grateful. Oh, I hope your Thanksgiving was better than that joke. I really am grateful for the privilege of being your preacher. Uh, very grateful for um, leaving this pulpit in capable hands with Chris last week while the sportsmen uh, enjoyed a much-needed staycation. I don't know when was the last time you experienced one of those, but um, we were desperately in need of one. And it was kicked off the day after the funeral for Gail's mom. God knew that we would need a welcome diversion from Doris's passing. So a year ago, thanks to Bess Griffith, Gail and my two girls booked an obstacle course race called the Rugged Maniac. In it, you attempt to conquer 25 obstacles over three and a half miles, one-third of them involving water. Well, when they booked that a year ago, they had no idea it would involve 54-degree weather. But despite the cool temps, they ran, and they bounced, and they climbed, and they swung, and they climbed down, and then they slid, and then they drank. Some of you aren't noticing that my daughter on the far right over there, <laughs> she did not intend on drinking, but she drank heavily there at the end of the race. And then they conquered, uh, and they had an absolute great time. I was the chauffeur for the event, and I was a photographer for the event, and gladly because I always wanted proof that I married a maniac. And I now have it. <laughs> and as you can see, she gave birth to two other maniacs. Uh, really a fun time with my family. And I want to say it again, grateful to be a part of this family. And how you loved on us uh, through the passing of Gail's mom. This words, words can't express. But some of you have been through an obstacle course this week. And it's been anything but a fun run. Instead of climbing on something, something climbed on you. Or it's bounced on you. Or maybe you drank something that shouldn't have been in your mouth either. At least not at your age anyway. And it wasn't an accident. It was my choice. But the results were nasty. Regardless of the unwelcome circumstances, it's been an obstacle course this week you never signed up for. But you have no choice but to engage. And I just want to say on behalf of God, he has a word for you. Some of you have enjoyed a season of blessing like the sportsman's. If there have been some obstacles, they have been challenging, but they certainly aren't crushing. They're certainly not life-threatening. Most of the unexpected circumstances that have come our way have not really been difficult at all. Rather, they've been filled with laughter and blessing for the last couple of weeks. If that's true for you, then good on you. And Jesus also wants to say he has a word for you as well. To every single one of us, their words of life, a life that matters. I don't know how he does it. But from the same text of Scripture, week in and week out, in this living word, the Spirit somehow speaks to all of our different lives. 
no matter what place they happen to be in. So I want to ask God's special blessing on this time for ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to the Kerrville Church of Christ. Let's bow. Father, we join with the Zion Lutheran Church and the other faith families in our community who also are breaking bread in your name and doing their best amongst their own version of the ritual to remember the sacrifice given and the amazing grace that's part of that blood which was poured out for us. And we come again in this season of Thanksgiving to say of all things that we're grateful for, that is what we're most thankful for. That you prayed a price that we could never pay. And you've made a way for us we could never make on our own to be with you forever. And together, as one voice, we just say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. When you hear the word conspiracy, it comes to mind. If you're in one of our local grocery stores, you may have seen this cover from the Inquirer. Did we actually land on the moon or was it some type of conspiracy? 9-11, was it really accomplished by just a third world terrorist country or was it a conspiracy? Did Lee Harvey Oswald pull off the assassination of John Kennedy on his own or was it a major conspiracy? Did aliens land in Roswell, New Mexico or was it some type of conspiracy? Actually, the word conspiracy comes from the Latin word simply meaning to breathe together. Now, to help you remember that, I need your help. Everybody sit up straight. Some of you are going to have to work at this. Sit up straight. Okay, ready? Here's what I want you to do. Breathe in and then breathe out. You've just launched a conspiracy. You did. In the, in the most literalist way, to conspire means, and you can hear the word spirit in there. I know you can. means to be filled with the same breath. It means to be filled with the same spirit. And normally, when the word conspiracy is used, it involves the co-breathing or the co-planning or the coordination of something that's usually deceptive and destructive. The aim of the conspiracies and the conspirators is usually to keep the conspired plan, it's hard to say, let alone right, (laughs) to try to keep that conspired plan concealed and secretive. Because harm is what's intended. But a couple of weeks ago, we were privy to a conspiracy Jesus launches with his disciples. Fresh from being resurrected, he's co-planning and he's cooperating and he's co-breathing a conspiracy of a different kind. This is a conspiracy that helps people. It brings hope to people. And in the end gives life without end to people. Ordinary, everyday people just like you and me. Now, at times it may be secretive and it may be covert, but this conspiracy always winds up showing itself. You can't help it because amazing love is hard to keep quiet about. Dallas Willard called it the divine conspiracy. And it's this divine conspiracy that the Apostle Paul records for us in John chapter 20 of his gospel when Jesus literally breathes on the holy holy disciples his Holy Spirit. Now, we looked at this a couple of weeks back, but here are the words that he said then. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. And with that, he conspired with them. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we talked about this two weeks ago, but if you want to see more of that lesson, just go to Breath of Heaven on our website, and you'll have a chance to see that. But here are a couple of details that I want you to take into this lesson for this morning. 
On that evening of the resurrection, when Jesus breathes on the disciples, two things happen. Number one, a commitment is kept. He had made a promise earlier in the week to the disciples. Listen, i got to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. I'm going to send the comforter, the counselor, the advocate to you. And here in John 20, the person of the Spirit comes. The power is going to come in Acts chapter 2, but the person is breathed upon them when Jesus says, I'm sending you, receive this spirit, and a conspiracy is launched. That's the second thing. Jesus and a room full of disciples conspire to take to the world this message we call the gospel, that their rabbi, their friend, was dead. <laughs> Really dead. Put to death by professional executioners dead. Laid in a tomb for three days dead. But God his father raised him. And then he showed himself to witnesses who would say, I saw him alive. That's the gospel that Paul says is of first importance and sends us out to teach and preach any way that we can. Any way. That we're eyewitnesses to the fact that even though we weren't there, that with God what may seem dead doesn't have to stay dead. That what may seem lost doesn't have to remain lost. And what doesn't seem possible is possible to him. Now, if you find very little about what I've said so far stunning or captivating or motivating, nobody would have understood that better than the Apostle John. When he writes his account of Jesus' life, it's near the end of the first century. Most of the stories that any of the people who knew Christ at the end of that first century heard about them secondhand or thirdhand. Now, there may have been eyewitnesses around still alive, but they were very, very old and getting on in years. You've got to realize that on the first Easter morning, if someone was six years old, by the time John's writing his gospel, they're 70. And John's problem then remains a problem now. How in the world do you encourage people to faith in Christ when he's nowhere to be seen or touched. And some of you in this room struggle with that, just like I've struggled with it. Well, including the story of Thomas, John has a way to show us how that happens. When he details this reluctant disciple's doubt, John takes the words out of many of your mouths and puts them in Thomas's instead. And so if you, my friend, have struggled to walk by faith like I have on certain days and not by sight, please know we're in good company. Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus appears to the disciples. And I personally don't think it was an accident. <laughs> I mean, surely Jesus, knowing all things, could figure out when the best time would be to get all the disciples in the same room at once. But when he chooses to come and reveal his scars to the disciples that he's alive again, he chooses to do so when Thomas is absent. Don't know why entirely, but I don't think it was an accident. Let's read it together. Now, Thomas also known as Didymus. I would have to say, as a side note, that if I was Didymus, I'd want to be known as Thomas too, okay? Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'm not believing. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, All right, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. And stop doubting 
and believe. And then Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. And Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. I tell you, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I don't think that was an accident. The first evening of the resurrection, Jesus shows up and Thomas is out. <laughs> For what reason, we don't know, but Jesus appears behind locked doors then. He didn't come in the window then. He didn't knock. He was just boom there, as we saw a couple of weeks back. And it's not his voice they recognize. It's not his chin they recognize or his hair or his eyes. It's the scars from the nails that were driven through his hands and feet and the mark from the spear that was driven in his side. That's what they recognize. And those gathered are so convinced it's him that afterwards when Thomas does show up, they ask him to take their word for it. Listen, we've seen him. I'm telling you, he's back, and he's forgiven us. He could have walked in the room and said, shame on you, but instead he said, shalom, peace be to you. Thomas, I'm telling you, it's him. And by all rights, with the sheer number of guys in that small room, the expected response from Thomas would have had to have been, well, that's good enough for me. I believe you. What's next, fellas? But that's not what he said. Here's what he said. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands... And in his feet, and I place my hand in his side. I'm not believing. And every one of us who wants to see something for ourselves before we decide if it's true says, Thomas, thank you. Now, you may not have caught this before in our study of the gospel, but Thomas never needed opinion polls to make up his mind about anything. Back in John 11 and verse 16, Jesus has been on going to Lazarus' home in Bethany, and it is deep in enemy territory now. The religious leaders have warned Jesus, if you show your face here again, it'll be the last. And all the other disciples are trying to talk Jesus out of going, and it's Thomas who says, Thomas, come on, guys, let us also go with him, that we may die with him. Wow, that's pretty bold coming from a fellow we've known as doubting Thomas. It is bold. But it's not unlike Thomas. Later in John chapter 14 and verse 5, Jesus tells the disciples at the Last Supper, don't be afraid, i got to go. But you know where I'm going. <laughs> and Thomas has the guts to say out loud what everybody else is thinking. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How in the world can we know? The guy was bold. He may have been literal-minded, but he was brave. And when integrity called for him to stand alone, listen, Thomas was going to stand alone until it was revealed to him what the next step needed to be, clearly. Unless I see, I will not believe, Thomas said. And I just want to say if that describes you, God can handle the need that you have to look before you leap. Jesus understands that kind of thinking. And I hope it is never said of anything but our leadership that we don't want to encourage anyone to check their brains at the door when they're considering faith in Christ. Because we believe there is enough evidence that demands a verdict of saying he is Lord. So we're never going to ask you to have blind faith. There's a difference between blind faith and thought through faith and evidential faith. And Jesus calls us to look at the evidence to make this choice about calling him Savior and Lord. And I love that about him. Why else would he have included the story of Thomas and his story? And in a move that defines graciousness, he doesn't dismiss Thomas from the inner circle of guys because he didn't believe what the other buds had said. 
On the contrary, Jesus makes sure Thomas is included in this circle, that Thomas is in on the conspiracy. And so he comes back and he repeats show and tell one more time just for Thomas. And if there was a hint of doubt from the first appearance to the rest of the disciples, it is absolutely wiped away when they all see for themselves again the scars from the nails and the scars from the spear. And Thomas, reluctant Thomas, hesitant Thomas, doubtful Thomas, responds, My Lord and my God. Now at first glance, it might seem that we're left out of that. None of us were there, and we weren't. None of us in this lifetime most likely will never lay our eyes on or our hands on the concrete, no shadow of a doubt, person of Jesus. No, we were outside of that circle by a span of about 2,000 years. And yet Jesus made sure to include us by speaking to Thomas, but he's speaking over his shoulder to every single one of us here when he says, have you believed because you've seen me? I'm telling you, blessed are those who've not seen and yet have come to believe. I heard that this week. He's talking about me. He's talking about Peggy and Dean and Gail and Don. He's talking about all of us. We're the ones over the shoulder of that statement. We have only believed because of the stories told by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. People who were there but are long dead yet still implore us to take their word. What we've seen, you can rely on as much as you rely on anything in the world, that this is true. They knew they were privileged that something extraordinary had happened in their lifetimes, and they knew it was up to them to make sure that some way, somehow, their kids and their kids and their kids' kids had the chance to participate in the incredible life Jesus offers to us. And I know I take that for granted too, Don. I take this meal that we took for granted, but I take these stories that they made sure that we heard for granted. I'm so glad that they didn't reduce Jesus' life to five easy-to-remember slogans and then laminate them for all eternity. No, they were led by the co-conspirator, this counselor, this comforter, the spirit, and they are inspired to write them down, all the stories necessary, not all of them, as we heard a few moments ago. Man, there's no library in the world that could have contained all the stories of Jesus, but the ones necessary for faith, they were put down. The ones that moved and shook them to the core of who they were. And, and they didn't always make the, the guys look like heroes, did they? No, they looked like inept stooges many of the time, much of the time. And that's, what, that's even more of what underscores why this has to be truth, because if I'm making this up, I make me look good, real good. And those bumbling, stumbling disciples don't look so good so much of the time. But they happened. And so they included it. Stories that point us to what God would look like if for a few years he came to this place and hung out with us. Stories that, that point to the wonder of who Jesus is and the difference he will make in your life when you conspire to live with him. And I can't explain this book any other way. I really can't. Other than this, this means by which... His power becomes your power. His life becomes your life. And he does it through stories. It is no wonder that we love stories because he's writing the story of stories and wants you in it. And, respecting for this, he gives you the options to believe it or not. But regardless of whether you do believe or not, the story's continuing. It started in Genesis and it's going to end around a throne. 
It started in a garden where things were lost, and it's going to end in a brand new garden, in a brand new Jerusalem, in a place where everything is found. Nothing is there that's lost. Nothing is there that's sorrowful. It's all good. And I want you to be a part of the story, but you don't have to be. But if there's one thing that comes out of this particular story today is that seeing is not superior to hearing. That ought to give you hope. Seeing is not superior to hearing. That the same faith that those apostles were drawn to is the same faith you can be drawn into by the power of this incredible book we call the Bible. The story of stories. And that just hit me this week and rolled over me this week that this conspiracy is still rocking. It's still happening. It's still moving through this world. But it involves a story. Maybe that's why they call not just Jesus, but this book filled with these stories, the living word of God. And Jesus says to all of us, listen close. Come on, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Now, can I do that literally? Can the story make us feel as if we can? And that's God. No speaker, no teacher, no mom, no dad, no governmental authority can do that. Only God. If we open our hearts to it, if we believe it, if we put our trust in everything about the one in whom this story is about, we, we become a part of the conspiracy, the divine conspiracy. Now, what can you do with this? What can you take away today and say, all right, here's what I need to, to do with what we heard this morning together as a family. Two things. Here's the first one. Share his story. Keep telling the story. So whoever will listen, whoever stop for just a moment to hear the story, you tell them this story, this gospel story, this incredible story from, from the garden to the throne. Tell them the story. But as important to that is, equally is this, keep sharing your scars. I, they're the combination here in John chapter 20. It's both the story that's unfolding and the scars that are shown, not once but twice to these disciples. And so it helps me understand how important my scars are. I know you walked in here with at least one thing, a wound. You're human. And although there may have been some wounds in your past that have been transformed, transitioned, as Ray said a few moments ago, from a wound to a scar, some of you walked in here with wounds from miscarriages and mismarriages. Wounds caused by abuse and neglect. Wounds caused by sudden death or sudden unemployment. Wounds caused by hatred or greed or jealousy or pride or any one of a thousand different ways in which we can get wounded because of the brokenness that came into that garden through sin. Wounds, however, that the blood of heaven and the breath of heaven can transition from a wound to a scar. You let Jesus touch that, you let Jesus baptize that, you let Jesus put his mercy and grace on that, and I am telling you, it transitions, it moves, it transforms, the scripture says. But don't take my word for it, just talk to some folks around here with, about their scars. If they'll share them, there's the challenge. Yes, the challenge is sharing his story, because sometimes we feel awkward about that, but also it's just as challenging to share the scars. But I'm encouraging this morning one more time, share the scars you've got. 
The challenge of what Jesus did for Thomas is our challenge to take those same sacred scars that God has transformed from a wound to a sacred scar to others and say, can I show you what God does in a human life that gets really messed up at times? That's conspiracy that I want to be a part of. There are those of you in this room right now who have experienced addictions that he's delivering you from, fears that he's helping you conquer. There are tragic things that have happened to you or because of you that through his grace you're trusting again. Through his mercy you're employed again. Through his grace your daughter's finally speaking to you again. What was once a wound, God's transformed into a sacred scar. And there are scars that are now the connecting point for somebody else's faith. Just as it was for doubting Thomas. I run into these doubting Thomases all over the place. I don't know about you. People who wonder... Can he really do anything meaningful in my life? Really? Is there really any hope in this thing you guys call church and scripture? Is there any faithfulness there? I'm not finding much of it out here, but is there anything different there among you? And together we hope to say, oh, yes, there is. Look at our scars. And we're trying to show them off together. Because sometimes we don't do that very well alone. And we're trying to share the story together because sometimes we don't do that very well alone. I don't know how much risk it was for Jesus to share his scars, but I know this. There's a lot of risk in sharing theirs. You never know how others are going to respond. Will they think less of you? Will they ignore you? Will they file you? Will they berate you? Will they give their life to Jesus because of you? I've had all the above happen. All of them. When I've shared my scars regarding my childhood with you or regarding my divorce and remarriage to Gail in regards to my struggles with pornography or greed or pride in my past, any of those wounds that God has touched and transformed into a scar, they're hard to share and sometimes they're hard to hear, but they're still the chosen means by which faithlessness becomes faithfulness and hopelessness becomes hopefulness. And God would love to conspire with this room of people if we would join him. And I believe if we would, our families would never be the same. And this community would never be the same. And I'm telling you, I think that's something to give thanks for. Father, we love you. And we declare that because we believe you're calling us to that. To leave some of the safety of our lives and the security of our lives to be storytellers, the storyteller and scar revealers. We want to keep sharing the story. We want to keep sharing our scars. But God, we come confessing. We don't do that easy. We, we come wanting to conspire with you. To coordinate with you. To co-breathe with you. Breathe again on us. Fill us again with the Spirit that would send us out of here to be a part of this divine conspiracy. We need your help. And so we cry out together in one family and say, would you please once again breathe on us that we might breathe on others that you would love on us that we might love on others and truly that all the heavens would give thanks in Jesus name we pray and everyone said